on Gulhani on politics this week. Accountability. No confidence in the SNP's plan for a national care service. Transparency. A special needs community seeks answers from the Scottish Government. And responsibility. The amazing work of Scotland's SPCA. Hello. And welcome to this week's podcast. I'm Dr. Sandesh Gulhane, and apologies for my croaky voice. I'm trying to recover from the flu. The Scottish Government is pushing ahead with its plans to establish a national care service. The bill, as it stands, allows Scottish ministers, all Scottish ministers, to transfer social care responsibilities from local authorities to a new centralised service. It's the most radical reform of Scottish public services since devolution in 1999 and covers adult and children's services, residential care, care at home. One in 25 people living in Scotland now receives social care support. Yet SNP ministers have not worked out how people would receive better services and confusion abounds on how much it would all cost. Now, outside the bubble of the SNP-led government, local authorities, charities, care home providers, care workers, unions, the Scottish Human Rights Commission and even the Scottish Parliamentary Corporate Body are deeply concerned. And don't take a Scottish Conservative's word for it. Here's the SNP's Michelle Thompson, member for Falkirk East, raising questions in the Scottish Parliament's Finance and Public Administrations Committee on the accuracy of a key financial document that must accompany any legislation. I'm surprised by the complete lack of what I would regard as fundamentals in the financial memorandum, and we've we've covered a number of those here, but I'd like to understand why. I understand that, that an FM is required to be produced alongside a bill, but how do we end up in the position that we've got an FM that is just doesn't even begin to cover the fundamentals. And for us as a committee, speaking personally, I can have no confidence whatsoever, based on my experience mostly in business, that the FM represents any level of accuracy and therefore value for money whatsoever. So how did we get here? Financial memorandums are supposed to be the best estimates of cost savings and changes to revenues arising from new legislation. These are important for budgetary reasons and also for taxpayers who ultimately foot the bill. But what we've got instead from the SNP is a paper that is meaningless, SNP Economics. And this will be used to support a centralised power grab by a Scottish government that has yet to explain how services will be better at the local level. Craig Hoy, MSP for South Scotland, led the Scottish Conservatives debate in Parliament and he called on the SNP to think again. The SNP's own members have raised their heads above the parapet to express concerns over how this government will fund its national care service. And after destroying council's finances, they are looking to do the same in social care. Audit Scotland is warning that the already eye-watering predicted costs of £1.3 billion are likely to be an underestimate. Presiding officer, we want to see a change in culture and a change in delivery at the local level. A service which is underpinned by a simple commitment to ensure that people access care in their local area, close to their family and close to their support networks. 
because centralisation doesn't just pose risks to those who work in the care system. It poses risks to those who need care and to the families who need to be around them. We agree that social care provision in Scotland is in crisis, but the last thing we need right now is a major bureaucratic overhaul of the system, which would see precious resources diverted away from the front line and into employing more management and admin staff. We need to see the SNP abandon these plans and put every penny into local care services, as we simply cannot afford to see up to £1.3 billion diverted away from the front line at a time when the sector is crying out for help. And in fact, Audit Scotland say it might be more than £1.3 billion. The SNP have spent years hollowing out our local councils with savage funding cuts. Their plans for a national care service, which would scrap local accountability and impose total ministerial control, represent a direct assault on local government, scrapping local accountability. Faced with the choice of putting over a billion pounds in funding into the frontline care, the SNP makes the wrong call again, opting instead to fund backroom bureaucracy with the Cabinet Secretary for Health and his lieutenants at the helm. Craig Hoy points out that the Health Secretary, Humza Yusuf, might be biting off more than he can chew. Humza Yusuf is still apparently supremely confident that he can captain the National Care Service despite sinking Scotland's National Health Service. Under the SNP, our NHS and social care systems are in crisis, which is why it is all the more reckless for this government to embark on wholesale structural reform when urgent action is needed at the front line. The SNP-led government have been warned by MSPs across the chamber and by stakeholders out width of Holyrood that their ideological drive to create a centralised control of social care is fraught with risks. The SNP and its junior partner, the Greens, don't speak for care organisations, social care staff, nor those receiving care. And they certainly don't speak for taxpayers. On the outskirts of Edinburgh, on the foothills of the Pentlands, you'll find a very special community that provides residential care, supported living and day service activities for adults with learning disability and autism. Tipperith is a Camp Hill community where people with complex needs work shoulder to shoulder on projects with support staff as co-workers. They focus on meaningful and collaborative projects such as conservation, gardening, woodwork and developing cookery skills which even generate revenue streams through sales of goods like compost. I met up with CEO Toby and Day Services Manager Lucy to learn more about Tipperith and how the Scottish Government's planned National Care Service will impact this community's operation. We pride ourselves on living together, growing together, working together. So our day services are vocational. We have a pottery, we do woodwork, we have a print studio, we have a quarry, um, where we have a social enterprise where we do firewood and compost. And all the members are essential to that. We don't have support workers, we have co-workers, we have everyone working together and they provide that service. It's a big community, but it's a community that live together. Three families with children and um, they welcome volunteers into their home uh, every year. It's kind of um, school leavers that want to explore 
um, potentially working in social care and they come and live with us for a year. And in those family homes, we also have adults with learning disabilities. So it's there's three big family homes uh, ranging between 12 to I think 16, 17 people in one of them. Um, and we, we basically share our lives together. How are you funded and what problems are you having with funding? The majority of our funding comes from um, the spot contracts that we have for adults with learning disabilities. An adult uh, with disabilities is given a pot of money to um, have residential and, and day service care provided uh, for them, um, but that pot is getting squeezed all the time. Um, so apart from the kind of real, you know, the, the rise in living, living costs that we're all experiencing, um, the other issue that we have is a lot of times these contracts don't get looked at for five to ten years. So there's no inflationary increase and, and people are just getting squeezed left, right and centre. Yeah, so um, there's two basic rates that we run off. So we run off group support and one-to-one, -one, but you have to fall into one of those categories. So either one-to-one -one all the time or your group rate one to well, your group rate all the time. And I think that we really find that members don't fit into that slot every day. <laughs> You know, um, and some people would benefit from maybe a couple of hours of one-to-one -one support where they can generally work it well in a group, but maybe they would benefit from a walk with someone as a dedicated person. But we, we can't provide that all the time because they have to, our staffing needs to tie in with their sort of specific rate that they have. But how does that funding translate into help? What, what is it that, that that funding really does? I just want people to, to be clear that it's not money it's actually helping people's lives. Yeah, well, I mean, uh, you know, influences everything that we do, influences the staff that we can get, you know, um, influences the salaries that we can pay and the people that we can attract to come and work here. You know, uh, we do say co-workers, uh, they, they are staff, you know, they are paid, they are salaried, but we want to bring in the best people for the role and we are, are limited in what we can sort of give, give them when the funding isn't matched, um, you know, when the um, Scottish living wage goes up, we don't necessarily get that money immediately. And so we need, can't pass that on to our staff and our staff are so valuable. And they, you know, we would give them all the money if we could. Um, but it needs to go into that. It needs to go into running costs. It needs to go into budgets for the groups. So as I said, we do do woodworking. We have, you know, it's a professional setup. We have um, lots of machines down there. It needs to go into the maintenance of them. It goes into purchasing them. We want to purchase good quality, sustainable, ecological materials. Um, and that doesn't come from nowhere. Um, we do get a lot of support from fundraising, but not everything can come from that. Members are setting up enterprises and actually making profit here. Yes, so we um, sell firewood and compost and the members are responsible for collecting the green waste from around Collington. So um, instead of sort of putting bins out, we provide um, residents with bags and the members go out every Tuesday and they pick up that green waste and they are responsible for every stage of turning that into compost. So from green waste, from checking the piles, to trommeling it, to bagging it, and then also to delivering it. Um, so the members will go out on deliveries during the week. We also have our firewood that we make. And again, the members um, produce that from start to finish. So responsible for going and picking it up, breaking it up. I want to turn, um, Toby, to, to the National Care Service. There was a memorandum, a financial memorandum that um, has been criticized 
but I think there are some more basic fundamental questions that you have that care organizations have. So I just wanted to know what your basic questions are for the National Care Service. It does frighten us. Um, and the reason it frightens us is that we feel there's already, with the decentralized system that we have, um, there's a lack of accountability, um, there's a lack, lack of communication. Um, so we are wondering how this would be improved if it was nationalized. Um, we're having real issues getting, as we already said about reassessment for members, we're having issues with finances. And if we're looking at having this on a national scale with less personal contact, with less individualized um, connections with, with uh, the support network for members, um, we're wondering how we can sustainably provide our service in the, in the future. If the National Care Service is created, what could that mean to unique organizations such as yourselves? It is a real risk, for sure, um, because we yeah, I think funding is the, is the fundamental issue for us. Funding is, is the number one thing, because as we were alluding to, um, what we're doing is a very personalized service. Um, people are unique, they need unique levels of support, and they also go through different stages in their lives. So sometimes the support might be more, sometimes it might be less. Um, but what we find ourselves in at the moment is the only way to kind of reassess um, individualized support packages is if people are in crisis. So if we're always just looking at dealing with people in crisis, then you know their lives will deteriorate and uh, will be a problem for us to find staff because staff will not want to work just with people in crisis. We want to be preventative. We want to have people, we want to guide them through their lives as good as possible. Um, and we, if we don't have that individualized support and connection with, with the local authorities as we have it at the moment, um, that could pose a real risk to us. So your understanding right now, what would the National Care Service set up be for people with disability and learning disabilities? Is it fair to say that we don't know? <laughs> we, um, both personally as well as with our colleagues, we've attended uh, meetings um, with, with the Scottish Government um, and, and others and many, many questions have been asked and the vast majority of them were not answered or were deferred. So we actually do not know and that is a very, very scary pros prospect. If we at least knew what we were dealing with, if we knew what the changes would be, um, we could adapt to that or we could potentially lobby and say, you know, this particular uh, proposal wouldn't work for us, but we do not know. Um, and that is, that is just that much more scary because if we're already faced with less finances than we need, um, at, at this current period in time, then, you know, how would we resolve that when we don't even know what we're about to, to go into? Tipperith CEO, Toby, a man with many unanswered questions. In fact, in the debate, Minister Kevin Stewart said that he had visited Tipperith, but as you can maybe tell from the interview, he certainly hasn't listened to them. If it wasn't so serious, you might think that the SNP's National Care Service plan was some kind of shaggy dog tail. From the Pentland foothills to Cardonald in South Glasgow, this is the Scottish SPCA's Glasgow Animal Rescue and Rehoming Centre. The centre mainly deals with sick, injured and stray animals and can help members of the public who are not able to cope with their pets anymore. The centre also steps in to support dogs that have been seized from illegal puppet farms. Puppy farming is now big business and estimated to be worth 13 million per year in Scotland, 
with dogs bred in huge numbers with little regard for their welfare. To find out more about Glasgow SPCA Centre, I spoke with Alan Grant, Senior Animal Care Assistant at Cardonald. We're a rescue and rehoming centre, so we mainly deal with sick, injured and stray animals. We will help members of the public with what we call animals that they're looking to rehome due to circumstances if we have the space to do it. But our main priority is sick, injured and stray animals. We also deal with neglect cases and stuff like that, and maybe puppy farm cases, and basically animals that need our help. Um, but we try and help the public when we can, when we have space to do so, but it's not always it's not always available, unfortunately. Obviously, if somebody can't afford to feed their animals, the next case would be maybe to contact us to ask us if we can take those animals in and rehome them because they can't afford to feed them. So we would rather that they got to keep their animals and we can help them on that side. It alleviates pressure on our system that we don't need to then look for space to bring that animal in here. And it also is much better for the owner that loves and cares for that dog who's just found himself in a difficult situation that we can do something to actually help them keep that dog in the family home, which is obviously much better for the family. And and dog. Yeah, 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 much better for the dog to be in a house than to be in a kennel. What's the process? So an animal comes here that uh, is a puppy, say, from a puppy farm. What's the process that that, that animal will, will go Okay, on? so there's, there's various situations for that, because obviously when the animal arrives here, it's been removed generally. So we'll, then there's, there could be a situation where there's a case to be fought and won. Um, so that could then mean that the puppy may have to stay here for a long period of time till that case actually goes to court. We could have a situation where the person that's been removed it relinquishes ownership of the animal, which will allow us to rehome it almost immediately. Um, but if they won't relinquish ownership of the animal, they want to fight that case through the courts, we may look for a foster home for that animal, where it means that that puppy can then go into a house and be raised by a foster home where we'll provide everything for that puppy because it still technically belongs to us, or uh, belongs to the owner until we win that case. And then when we win that case, that then dog can be rehomed with a lot of information at the back of it that it's now house trained, it's socialised, and it's had a much better start in life than it would have had had it had to grow up in a kennel environment or been in the puppy farm environment. Yeah, so the foster the foster care would just look after the dog and 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 do basic training, is that right? Yeah, yeah, we have a provision on our system where they'll sign up to be a, a foster carer and they have to go through a lot of training so that they're using the appropriate training methods that the SSPCA sanctions, so we're positive reinforcement training. So no punishment, no fear, no intimidation type training. And they'll get all the information that tells them how to do that. Um, they'll sign up to that, they'll do the training. And then if we get a puppy that suits their situation, we'll then foster that puppy into that environment where they'll look after it for a period of time. Now that could be as little as a few weeks, um, or it could be maybe a number of years. It can go from anything. Because even one of the puppy cases, maybe we say it's going to be long term, and then the person we've removed it from decides that he doesn't want to go further, he's just going to sign them over, and it could end after a couple of weeks. So it's very difficult for the foster home to give them an idea of how long they might have it. But generally a foster home is for fostering, not for rehoming. That's trying to keep the two entities separate um, because we don't want people fostering and think they're going to be able to adopt and then can't because we don't win the case or for some reason the dog has to go back. And vice versa, we don't want people um, fostering for well, only a week or two and then they have the dog for 18 months. You know, So that kind of thing. So we're just trying to keep it two separate entities. Okay. And, and then... It's not just dogs though that you do here, but what what's the the range of animals? Anything that anybody would keep as a domestic pet, we will see it sometime or other. So we have a reptile room, we have a bird room, and we have a ferret room, we have a rabbit room, and then we have a small animal room for other species that they might get. So pretty much anything that anybody would keep as a domestic pet, and sometimes things that people shouldn't keep as domestic pets, we will get in as well. So what's the weirdest animal that you? You've had here. Probably the three weird ones. We've had a few monkeys, capuchin monkeys, that people have had as pets. Monkeys? Monkeys, yeah. We've had two spectacle caimans, so two crocodiles, um, that were being kept, one in somebody's bath, and the other one was trying to be sold at a car boot sale. 
Um, so we yeah we get some really weird and wonderful stuff, and then a lot of the internet causes a problem because people are bringing eggs and stuff in from species and then hatching them over here, so that causes a problem as well. Thankfully, that's fairly rare. Alan Grant, Scottish SPCA Senior Animal Care Assistant in Glasgow. Animal rights groups, police forces, and even His Majesty's Revenue and Customs are now working together as members of a UK-wide task force called Operation Delphine to raid and prosecute puppy farms and individuals involved in this illegal trade. The SPCA urges people to do their research before buying a puppy, buy from a responsible breeder, and verify where the dog is actually coming from. There is legislation to protect the welfare of animals that places a duty of care on pet owners to ensure welfare needs are met. Currently, the maximum penalty is five years imprisonment, though fines are unlimited. Well, that's all for this week's Gulhalian Politics. Thank you so much for listening, and don't forget to follow and subscribe to this podcast. We'll be back next week for another eclectic taste on politics in Scotland. For now, I'm Dr. Sandish Gulhani, desperately trying not to cough. Bye-bye.